this amazing gift from the Holy Spirit. The price is right. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this is interesting. So I was I was actually praying a lot about this, maybe too much, because I got a handful of clues. So I'm just going to start off with the first one I got, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. So I'm going to hold this up for me. Perfect. Okay. So the first one I was praying, the first image I got was uh, like a little girl. And I want to say maybe a white or like cream colored dress just running through a field and butterflies were everywhere. Um, And I thought like, man, maybe this is just like a clip from a movie or something I've seen. But I don't think so. I've never seen anything like this like live. I don't think. So does that resonate with anybody here this morning? Little girl in a white dress running through a field and butterflies are just surrounding, surrounding her. Okay, that's okay. We got more clues. I have more clues. <laughs> the uh, the other the next clue that I got was uh, still a woman, and, and this person has a butterfly tattoo um, somewhere on their back. Somewhere on their back. And we're okay with tattoos here. Yeah, <laughs> you can come up. I got like three tattoos, so it's okay. Y'all still love me, so. <laughs> Okay, so maybe it's not just on her back. It could be anywhere. Does anybody have a butterfly tattoo? Okay, I have another clue, so we're we're still good. <laughs> All right. Um, so also, I just got just a really strong impression that this is still for for one of the ladies here today. But uh, favorite color is purple. Oh, oh, okay. Hey, hey, come on. <laughs> All right. All right. Nice to meet that tattoo. <laughs> okay. Amen. We're going to take that this morning. Okay. So what I want to do. Yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit about what the painting meant. Um, what I felt like God wanted me to kind of display when I was doing it. Uh, so, uh, like a caterpillar, caterpillar, ah, awaiting, I promise y'all I could read, <laughs> awaiting a new life, a new body, um, we come to Christ. In the process of, process of accepting him as our savior and receiving salvation, we're rebirthed as a beautiful butterfly, pruned and refined, a completely new creation in being in Christ, our old shell or life has been uh, washed away, we're completely new in him, and what a great exchange that the father wants us to engage in, engage in us with today um what a what a fitting day to be resurrection sunday so he wants that beautiful exchange and uh that's what i got all right good to see thank you thanks nicole so um i just appreciate our team of painters who do that because that takes some bravery so we're just going to keep going for it and we believe the holy spirit wants to speak to people so thank you guys Thank you. All right. I'm about to dismiss the children. Um, I just wanted to to put out a little disclaimer there. Uh, We're about to have a a powerful testimony shared this morning. I just wanted to say I sent the text out to as many parents as I could remember this morning, but maybe I don't have your information so you didn't receive the text. But if you have children under 14, I would encourage you to have them go ahead and go to class this morning um, simply because some of the information may be age sensitive. That's not going to be rated R or anything like that, but you may not want your young children just to hear some of the elements of the testimony. So we just want to encourage you to uh, 
uh, go ahead and send your children to class. And so, children, you are dismissed to your classes. All right. Well, I am ex- very excited. As we were praying for and preparing for Resurrection Sunday, I just felt like the Lord was encouraging me to, uh, you know, to really put on display His resurrection power by means of what He does in people's lives. And, and so we talked to Heather uh, Underwood, and she's going to come and share a testimony. Uh, Lisa and I had the privilege of hearing it a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was, it made me more excited about today. Uh, that you guys are going to get to hear a wonderful story of what God can and does do uh, through people he loves, which is all of us, right? So I'm going to go ahead and invite Heather, our sister, uh, New Covenant. Come on up. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. It is a good morning, right? Easter. All right. Well, when CJ asked me to share, first of all, thank you, CJ and Lisa, for giving me this opportunity. Um, When he asked if I would share my testimony, I was super excited. Um, I love to talk about what God's done in my life and how he changed me and the things that he's brought me through. Um, But many of y'all know that Johnny and I are involved in a counseling ministry, and we're also building a house, and I homeschool our our five kids, and so life is very busy. And so the Lord knew that the only time he was really going to have for for me to prepare this message for y'all was at 1 a.m., So I've been up at 1 (laughs) a.m. every morning for two weeks, and I'll take it. If God wants to meet with me at 1 a.m., I'm I'm down with that. But I am looking forward to tonight because I think I might get to sleep. So, (laughs) um, but seriously, when when he asked me, you know, the first thing that I thought of was, why, why is my story important? Why are our memories important? Um, Why is it important that we share them? with each other or with the world. And I ran across this quote by Corey Ten Boom, who was a Holocaust survivor. She said, memories are the key not to the past, but to the future. And that just really touched my heart. Memories are the key not to the past, but to our future. And I was praying about that and asking God what that meant. And, you know, I came across Psalm 56 where David says, you, Lord, keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. So this tells me that the Lord cares very deeply about what we've gone through in life. He cares about the things that we've struggled through. He cares about the places that we've been. And he cares about our hearts. And I'm crying already, so I'll just warn you. (laughs) Our stories matter very deeply to the Lord, I believe. And the other thing that that came to me is that, thank you, CJ. (laughs) I should just strap this on me somewhere. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The other thing that came to me is that a lot of times, you know, as we're unsaved and we're living through life, we collect a lot of junk, right? We collect um, other people's opinions of us. We collect um, the words that people speak over us. We collect a lot of the lies that I believe the enemy of our soul directs at us and our own sins. 
you know, that tell us who we are. And I believe we, we can develop like a false identity, an identity or a picture of ourselves in our mind that isn't God's best for us, that isn't his plan or purpose for us. And when we're counseling with people, I often say the enemy knows the right lie. And what I mean by that is he knows the lie to tell over and over again that's aimed at keeping you out of God's promise and your future and your hope in him. The places where you are potentially most effective are the places that the enemy targets to lie to you about. For example, I've always had a fear of speaking in public. (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) So it's important to look at our memories because many times we can pull up those weeds that the enemy has planted in our in the garden of our hearts, and we can begin to build a new identity around Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and who he's really created us to be. And finally, in Revelation 12, 11, the word says that they, the brothers and sisters, triumphed over him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So today we're here to celebrate Easter. We're here to celebrate the fact that Jesus did shed his innocent blood to cover our sins. And we're here to celebrate what that did in each story. My story isn't special because it's very, very difficult or, you know, because it's so extreme. I know a lot of you have been through worse things in life than what I've been through. Um, Or maybe, you know, you were raised in a really good environment and you haven't been through things that other people would consider traumatic. It doesn't matter what our story is. Our story, when we allow him into it, becomes his story. And his story is important and beautiful and it's special and he cares about each and every story. So my story is, is, is important for the same reasons that your story is important today. So, I'm going to go ahead and start telling you my story. (laughs) Um, I was born, I'm the youngest of three girls. I was born to two very different people. (laughs) My mom is very um, dramatic and emotional and kind of um, likes excitement, and there was always a lot going on, you know, in her world. And my dad is kind of steady Eddie. He's very uh, conservative. My mom's like a very left-leaning Democrat. My dad's a very conservative Republican. They didn't have a whole lot in common, so I'm not sure how they got together, but I'm here. (laughs) And so are my sisters, so opposites attract, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, but unfortunately, um, their marriage didn't last. And one of my first memories um, was when I was about five, they sat us down and they explained that they were getting a divorce. And They made a big deal of, you know, that like you're supposed to do for your kids, telling them, you know, it's not your fault and it's going to be better for everybody because mom will be happier and dad will be happier and we'll all be happier this way. And and I I think they did a little too good a job because I I got on the school bus the next day and I was like, my parents are getting a divorce. (laughs) And I saw people's faces just go. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I realized maybe they were fibbing a little bit, and it wasn't such a great thing after all. So, but we became this divorced family. You know, I saw my dad like every other weekend and for vacations. Um, and then we lived with my mom. So even though you know we were we were promised kind of that things were going to be better after the divorce, 
uh, things really just kind of got worse. <laughs> so um, my mom had a difficult time being a mom. She, she was a single mom now, and I know that that's really, really hard, you know, to walk through those responsibilities by, by yourself. And I think it's important for me to tell you guys that during my story, I don't want to dishonor my parents in any way, but I do think it's important that I tell you things from my perspective as a kid. Now, now as an adult, I can forgive, and I have forgiven, and I see things a little differently. But from my perspective as a kid, we were alone a lot. Um, there was a lot of verbal abuse and attacks and criticism was really strong in our household. I remember apologizing all the time <laughs> as a kid and um, going to friends' houses and, and, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And their parents would say, you don't have to apologize all the time. But really, I did, <laughs> because it kind of felt like we were just an inconvenience to my mom. We, we were in the way, and that was hurtful. So my answer to that was, you know, to always be as good as possible. I wanted to be a good girl and make good grades and, and do all the right things and stay out of mom's way and make sure that I was making mom happy. My sisters didn't get the memo that this is how it's going to work, and so they rebelled. <laughs> they were very antagonistic with my mom. They had a lot of arguments. You know, I remember physical arguments and altercations, and it was just a lot of trauma for a little person to grow up in, honestly. Um, so... My sister, Alicia, my oldest sister, at 16, things just got too much, and she was sent to live with my aunt. Um, so now it's just me and my middle sister, who's four years older than me, April. So let me tell you a little bit about April, because April and I became very close. She was this teeny, tiny little person. <laughs> She's about half of Leah, if you could picture that. <laughs> she has red hair, and she had big opinions and big feelings, and she was just little on the outside, but very big on the inside. She had, uh, she was very different from the rest of us in our family. She was a tomboy. She liked sports. She liked the Dallas Cowboys. She liked OU, Todd. <laughs> I almost brought her OU jacket and wore it, but then I thought I might get killed. So, uh, <laughs> She loved to stay up late reading Agatha Christie novels, I think, and eating chocolate and drinking Coca-Cola and doing all kinds of things that she wasn't supposed to do because um, April was actually born with a congenital heart condition. And she was up here. Thank you. <laughs> she was, um, it was a very rare disease. She was born in San Diego. And because my dad was in the FBI, the Air Force did a courtesy flight and flew this tiny little baby to Houston where she could get to the one doctor who could perform this life-saving surgery. So um, this operation worked, and April's life was saved. And I just remember as a kid, you know, she was, she was very tiny. She was very frail. And we spent a lot of time worrying about April's health and keeping her away from, you know, any potential situations where she could get sick. Um, she didn't care. <laughs> She never complained. I never remember her complaining, but she was in and out of hospitals, um, always, you know, at the doctor. And again, this kind of reinforced my belief that I should just be as invisible as possible, you know, so that she could get the help that she needed. That was the, the way that I coped. Um, so life was kind of spent taking care of her and, and her needs. Um, 
we were very, very close. We were kind of the only people that could talk to each other about what we were going through in life. So if you can imagine more like a twin relationship, because that's what it was. I mean, we were just really close and tight with each other. Now, one of the bad things about April having all these big feelings was, like some of you may know, if you're, if you're a big feelings person, you're kind of prone to depression. So she would get depressed and very upset, and, and we weren't living in an environment where she could really talk to someone about how she was feeling. I wasn't really encouraged at home. And so when she was about 14, I walked in and into her room, and she had a plastic dry cleaning bag wrapped all over her head. And that was one of, one of many suicide attempts for her. Um, so at about that age, my mom sent her to the inpatient mental health unit at OU Medical Center. And she was there for about three or four months um, doing counseling, you know, meeting with people to try to help her. And she did get better. Um, she, when she... When she finally kind of was released, she she went to live with my dad here in Stillwater. And that was a hard time for me because all of a sudden, my confidant is gone, right? My sister's gone. My mom at this time is really involved with her boyfriend. And it it was just a lonely time for me. I didn't know about cutting back then, but I would grab my wrists and my arms and just hit on myself because I had such a feeling of unworth and of pain. And sometimes we just want to make that external somehow as kids, and we don't know how to do that, and we don't have a place to communicate it. So um, April's living with my dad. One day I, I come home from school, and I'm rifling through my mom's nightstand drawer, and I come across some Polaroids. And these are pictures of my mom and her boyfriend in pornographic positions, basically. And um, it was shocking. It was disgusting to me because this is my first exposure to sex of any kind. Um, It was scary. I I didn't know what to do. I knew I couldn't tell my mom because she would get mad at me, for sure. (laughs) I would be in trouble. And so I just didn't say anything. Um, And then I was visiting with my sister at my dad's house one weekend, and she, she knew something was wrong because she knew me. And she kept kind of poking and prodding around, and finally she got it out of me. And so she went to my dad, and she said um, what was happening, what was going on at, at home. And there were other things as well. And my dad said, that's it. You're never going back. And I'm grateful that he protected me in that way. He called my mom and said, um, she's, she's not going home to you. And my mom, you know, she fought for a little bit. She, she argued with him. But then about maybe 30, 40 minutes later, she called back and she said, okay, you can have her. And that hurt because I wished that she had fought for me a little bit. I wish that she had wanted me a little more than that. So it carried a lot of that hurt and that bitterness towards my mom. For a lot of years. Um, And it started to affect my life even after, you know, I moved here to Stillwater to live with my dad. Um, 
he gets married to a great lady. And so we're, we kind of have this normal home life now, which was news to me. I mean, I was used to like going to my friend's house after school and staying for three days. <laughs> and my mom didn't know where we were and she never asked, you know. <laughs> so now my dad's like freaking out. He's an FBI agent. If you don't come home, you know, he's calling the police. He was, he was very upset about this kind of behavior, but I'm trying to get used to that. And I'm trying to please him with this whole new set of rules. And I'm still trying to do well in school. That was always my thing. You know, I was going to do well in school. And, um, it was a good time as far as, you know, stability goes. It was a good home for, for stability. We ate dinner together every night. Um, there still wasn't a lot of room there to talk about, like, what I'd been through, you know, or to deal with anything that I'd been through. Nobody asked. We didn't talk about that kind of thing in our family. So I was just kind of stuck with it. Um, I'm experiencing, like, a lot of anxiety. You know, I'm throwing up every day. Nobody really asks why. It's just what it is, and you deal with it. As my mom told me once, you know, change is the only thing constant in life. So you better get over it. And that was kind of the idea of our family. What, you know, we just, we sucked it up. We were tough. So, um, coming out of my adolescence, you know, I'm, I had learned three, three big things. One was that my feelings really didn't matter much at all. Um, certainly not as much as other people's. Number two was that I was on my own. I had to take care of myself. And number three was that I needed to be strong. I needed to be tough to get through life. So when I'm about 17, April got pneumonia. And as anybody who, you know, knows anything about the heart and the system knows, pneumonia is very dangerous for someone with a heart condition. But she had come home from the hospital. She was doing pretty well, and I thought she was getting better. Um, And one day... I, I go somewhere, and when I come back, my parents aren't there, and April's not there. And I knew something was wrong, you know, probably. Maybe they were at the hospital again. And um, I'm unloading the dishwasher. You know, you have those memories in your life that you can just see, like you're watching a movie. Um, and I look out the window, and I see my dad and stepmom, and they're coming up the walk. And they're just leaning on each other. And I thought... This is bad. So they get in, and they tell me what's happened, and that April's passed. Um, And I just kind of crumpled. My dad, um, he kind of retreated. He went into his bedroom and shut the door. And my stepmom and I are sitting on the couch. How many of you know, and maybe you've done it, I think I have, when, when people are in grief, sometimes we just say things that we really shouldn't say. <laughs> we say things that don't make sense. You know, when you're trying to make sense of an impossible thing, sometimes we say things that just don't make sense. And this, I really think, was one of those moments. But unfortunately, the enemy used it. Um, I'm sitting on the couch with my stepmom, and she says, you have to be strong now for your dad. And, of course, that was my lie, right? I mean, I knew I needed to be strong. So whatever feelings I was having, you know, I, I sucked them back in real quick. And I stopped, 
shut that down. I was good at that. (laughs) And I kind of sat there in shock for a minute and disbelief. And I went on. And so what I remember is, you know, that my dad and my dad completely, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like he was just in himself, you know, trying to deal with this loss. And then my mom comes from California. She's very emotional and creating scenes, and we're trying to keep mom together. And I think they thought that if I helped to plan the funeral, it would be helpful for me somehow. But my memory of it is that um, because they were so incapacitated by their grief, they couldn't make decisions. And so, you know, I picked out my sister's casket. I picked out her program for her funeral. I picked out the songs. I arranged her whole funeral, basically. And then I remember sitting there in the pew, and, you know, my mom's on this side and my dad's on this side, and they're just leaning on me, weeping, and I don't have any tears. Because who would I go to with those, right? So something in me changed because of that hardness. Something in me just shut down. I don't know how else to describe it. It was many years before I could cry again. Sometimes we have the power to turn the tears off, but we don't have the power to turn them back on again when we need to cry. So I'm very angry with my parents. (laughs) I'm angry that I don't get to grieve. I'm angry that I've lost my sister. And I'm angry with God, too. Um, I didn't know God real well. We kind of served, like, the God that agrees with me (laughs) in our house. Like, I think it's right, so God's on that page, too, you know? And and we went, you know, we went, like, on Easter to church, and sometimes we went to church. But um, we just didn't have a lot of teaching. We definitely didn't believe the Bible was, like, the infallible word of God. We did not have that uh, belief going. And so God was just kind of distant Uh, I didn't think he really cared about what I was going through. I didn't know if he was responsible for my sister's death, but I was willing to blame him. You know, I was really willing to blame pretty much anybody who came in my path because I was pretty angry. Um, So the way that I handled this was just kind of to reject my family. I stopped spending time with them, and I focused on my friends. And they became my new family. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, you know, my friends, I'm 17 at this point, 18, They're pretty broken people, too. So I'm drinking on weekends. I'm kind of binge drinking, you know, partying a lot. I'm still keeping my grades up because I wanted my parents to see that good girl when they look at me. I want to feel that about myself. So I have this uh, two different kind of lives that I'm living. And, of course, I found a boyfriend and developed a pretty unhealthy, dependent relationship on him because he was somebody I could go to with these emotional hurts. And eventually, it became sexual. And I remember it was probably about a week after I lost my virginity. I'm at a party at my boyfriend's house, and I'm drunk. And I pass out in uh, his roommate's bedroom on the floor. And when I wake up, His roommate's on top of me, and he's violating me. So I remember saying no, but then I passed out again, and then coming back again and saying no. 
but nothing stopped. And uh, it's only been within the last year or so that I've called that rape. I always, at the time, you know, I told my boyfriend about it, and he was mad, you know, at his, at his buddy. And I was mad, for sure. But the feeling was, you know, like, you were drunk, and you passed out in his bedroom. So what'd you expect? And I kind of felt that way about it, too. I thought, well, what'd I expect? Um, so eventually, I break up with that boyfriend. I'm a sophomore at OSU, and I'm with another guy because I couldn't be alone. I was never alone. That was my support system, right? And I look down one day, and I realize I'm getting kind of fat. <laughs> but I'm not fat. <laughs> um, what happened was, of course, I was pregnant. And I know that I must have had sex ed during this time period. I know. I just don't know if it was the trauma. I didn't pay attention, okay? And so I was not making any plans, like, not to get pregnant, and yet I was sexually active. And so, of course, I got pregnant. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, I was, I was scared. I was definitely scared to tell my parents I didn't want to break their hearts all over again. I didn't want them to see me as this bad person, you know. We really only had, like, two categories in my family. Is you're in the good box or you're in the bad box, and there's not much in between. And I didn't want to be in the bad box with them, you know. Um, and I'm 20 years old. I'm going to college. I didn't want to have a baby. I didn't know what a mom looked like. I mean, I wasn't sure what a good mom would look like, but I was pretty sure it wasn't me, right? Um, so my friends help me. We make an appointment in Norman, and I have an abortion. And after that, you know, even though my mom had kind of raised us with the mentality of, you know, it's your body, it's your choice, and we were rah-rah feminists, you know, (laughs) in my family, but something in me just kept getting harder and harder and and it hurt and I didn't know why you know I felt that loss and I didn't know why and I didn't know what to do with it so um I jumped into activities I was like in the student government association and you know I was doing all these things in a sorority and I was doing all these activities trying to see myself as a good person again basically maybe if I can just make my life you know look good look really really good and other people see me as good then I'll be all right um I bought a new car I got really fit it just it wasn't working No matter what I tried, it it wasn't working. I still had this hollow, empty, hurting place in my heart. And so then I thought, I know, it's not me, it's Stillwater. (laughs) How many of you have heard that before? (laughs) I need to get out of this crummy little town. So I packed my bags with my boyfriend in tow. I wasn't going by myself. And I moved to Houston. (laughs) And Bright Lights Big City was going to wipe away, you know, everything wrong in my life. Um, That didn't work either. (laughs) So while I'm in Houston, you know, I'm still kind of going to school, but kind of not. I'm kind of just drinking. (laughs) I'm kind of just doing ecstasy and cocaine and pretty much everything except needles, because not needles. That's just scary. (laughs) 
But everything else, (laughs) anything else that can kind of stop the pain for a little while and make me feel a little bit better about life for a little while, I was going to do it. Um, So while I'm there, I I meet a guy, another guy. And we start a relationship. Now, we, we bonded especially quickly because his dad was a CIA agent who died in the Murrow bombing. And this is about a year after. And so he's grieving. We have dads in law enforcement. We have all these common things. And I was very superstitious at this time, I should tell you. I mean, like, all you had to do was say the right line, and I'd be like, oh, it's a sign. You know? <laughs> I think I actually went to a tarot card reader, like at a Renaissance festival or something, and she was like, this is the guy for you. And I was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) So, clever me. Um, We bonded very quickly, and and he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. Um, And yet again, I get pregnant. And I would love to tell you guys that, you know, I made a different choice this time. That I got my head screwed on straight and I had the baby and we made a life of it. But that's not what happened. Um, He took me to this high-rise place, high-rise office building in downtown Houston. And I go up and there's this room with probably 30 beds, curtains, and they have you take off your clothes, knock you out, give you something to knock you out. And about maybe 30 minutes later, this woman's shaking me, waking me up. And I'm still really groggy from the medication, and I'm hurting. And she's like, get out, you know, get dressed. We, we're, this is an abortion mill. We're, we're churning and burning here. We got other people to get in the door. So he takes me down the elevator, and I'll never forget this guy. You know, he's probably a lawyer. He's got his suit on, his briefcase, and I'm like this in the elevator. And he's like looking everywhere, trying not to look at me because he knows, you know, what's going on in his office building. And I make it out to the grass, the little grass area in front, and I puke all over the lawn as these highfalutin business people in Houston are walking out of this office building. And I remember that picture so so clearly because it was just such a humiliation. There was no way after this that I was ever getting back in the good girl box, right? I mean, it wasn't happening. I was completely ashamed of myself. I was completely worthless in my own eyes. I had nothing to offer to anybody, really. And so I don't know if it was out of trying to redeem this situation, but the guy asks me to marry him. And I remember very clearly thinking, like, I'm 24 at this point. You know, maybe love isn't all that important. (laughs) Maybe I've been doing this wrong. Maybe this guy's nice. You know, he's a nice guy, and he's asked me to marry him. And everyone else is getting married, you know, at 24. And maybe this is just what people do. This is how I'm supposed to be an adult and live my life right. And so we get married. We have this beautiful big wedding in Oklahoma City. And as soon as I turned around to go back down the aisle, I knew, I just knew I had this sinking feeling in my heart. And I thought, this is a terrible mistake. But we're married. (laughs) So we try to make a go of it. We were married about two years. And then we got divorced. 
So at this point, I'm living in Dallas. I'm working, and I meet this cute guy. <laughs> How many of these are there going to be? I don't know. But this is the last one, I promise. Because <laughs> he's right there. <laughs> I meet this cute guy, and he's a Christian, and he doesn't want anything to do with me, I can tell you. I mean, I don't know. He might have thought I was a little cute, but I was like, I'm going to hell, and I'm taking you with me, and I said that out loud to him. Um, because I had no fear of God at this point, right? I mean, I was pretty hard. And I'm still drinking a lot. I'm still doing a lot of self-destructive things. Um, But this guy keeps inviting me to church. And I'm like, I'm not going to church. Who wants me in church? Like, you people don't want me there. Trust me. I'm not going. And he just keeps asking and talking to me a little bit about God and um, eventually I, go, I agree to go with him to church. And there are two main reasons, which he may not know. Number one is it was a beautiful big church in Dallas. And I always wanted to see the inside. So that was number one. Number two was he invited me on Valentine's day. And how many of you know, like to a girl, I'm like, that's practically a date. If we're going to church on Valentine's day. So I'm like, okay. So I call my one friend that's like a backslidden Christian, and she's like, I'm like, what? I'm going to church with this guy. It's on Valentine's Day. What should I expect? And she says, oh, it's Valentine's Day. It'll be like 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I can get on board with that, you know? And... So I walk in this church. I just, sometimes I picture things from God's perspective and I think he's just laughing so hard. So I walk in this church and these people, there's probably 5,000 people in this church of all different colors and creed. I don't know, but they're, they're just rocking it. I mean, it is so much excitement in this church and people are clapping and people got their hands up in the air. Like they just don't care. And... <laughs> They're so excited, and I'm like, what is going on? This is not First United, whatever, of Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I don't know what's happening here. And so I'm kind of digging it, though. I'm like, this is fun. You know, it's way more fun than I thought church was going to be. And then the guest speaker, not the pastor, but the guest speaker gets up to speak. It's a woman, and she's speaking on the Jezebel spirit. God has such a sense of humor, doesn't he? I'm like, what? (laughs) And the cool thing was, this is a really cool thing. And this is why you should never censor what God gives you to say. Because I was like identifying hard with what she was saying. You know, she's talking about manipulation and just different things that, you know, affect people's lives who are affected by this Jezebel spirit. And I'm like, that's me. That's me. I think I have that. And and I'm pretty sure other people in my family do too. And and, um, so I get done with this sermon. I'm like, that was weird. And, you know, I think, I don't know if we went to lunch, but I'm asking questions. Like, why did they raise their hands? What's that about? You know, and Johnny's like, it's, they're just surrendering to God, you know. And so it intrigued me. And, And interestingly, when my husband moved me from our apartment into this new apartment, the only thing in the apartment was a Bible. 
And it was like one of those Gideon's Bibles, you know. And up until now, I had mainly used that to play like drunk Bible roulette with my friends. Like Bible roulette, in case you don't know, is where you flip the pages and you go, and whatever verse you land on, you read to each other. That doesn't work real well because God knows what you're doing. (laughs) And he makes sure it's from like Leviticus or something. (laughs) It never made any sense. It never worked. But now I'm reading it because it's in my my house, and I'm like, this is really cool. Like, I'm I'm actually learning things, you know, and I'm reading it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I'm still mostly drunk, but but I'm reading it. And I'll never forget, I was in a service in this church, and the pastor said, I've, I've gone maybe two or three times now, and the pastor said, I cannot promise you that you will not have hardships in your life after you accept Christ. But I can promise you, you will never be alone. You'll never be alone again. And I took that home, and I thought about it. And I was walking down the hall, and I kind of passed this bathroom mirror. And I don't know if God just gave me an insight in my spirit or a revelation or what you want to call it, but it was like I could see reflected there what I was going to be in 20 years if I didn't change my life. And the hopelessness that was on my face and and written into me was in that reflected mirror image for a minute. And I just, I just knew that without him, I was hopelessly lost. And I hit my knees in my apartment, and I said, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I know that I'm capable of every kind of sin. There's nothing that I wouldn't do or hadn't done up until that point. But if you can do anything with me, Lord, then I give you my heart, and I give you my life, and I ask you to save me and to help me. And he did. (laughs) He showed up like he always does when we ask and we believe in faith. So now I'm, I'm excited. I have this joy that just wells up in me in this peace. And I know that I'm loved. And I know that I'm not alone. But there's more. (laughs) Um, I go to church like two weeks later and I mean, I'm going to church now, and I'm, I'm pretty pumped because I know this guy that they're all talking about. I'm in on the secret. And I'll never forget, I would sit next to this little old lady always. I always got the same little old lady in this 5,000-member church. And, you know, they would project the Bible verses onto the screen. So I, in my newbiness, I thought that that just meant you were supposed to read the screen. But she had her Bible, and she would point to her Bible and make sure I was looking at the Bible and reading my Bible. And she would check on me. It was really sweet. Anyway, but I'm there one Sunday and the pastor's talking. He gives this great scriptural lesson about Holy Spirit baptism and how that, you know, fits into our walk with Christ. And, and, and I'm intrigued by this. And then, you know, at the end he says, um, this is a free gift that God has for you. And I'm like, I don't know Jesus that well, but I know he has good stuff for me. So if it's a free gift, I'm going to take it, you know, and I'm just waiting like for the moment when he's going to invite people up to receive this free gift, kind of the painting thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I go down front 
And I'll never forget this sweet woman. I know I remember her name. Johnny's laughing because he knows her too. She's so sweet and ladylike and petite and tiny. And she's, she's a prayer minister. And she's up there just waiting for people to come pray. And around her are these huge men who I thought maybe are bouncers. I don't know. I'm like, are they bodyguards because she's so holy? I don't know why they're there. I have never, y'all need to understand, I have never been in a church where people raise their hands, much less speak in tongues or do or fall on the floor or any of that stuff. I have no clue. So I go up there and she's like, do you want to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and his power? I'm like, yes. And she's like, just raise your hand and receive it. And so I, I do. And I raise my hand and all I can tell you is it was like electricity. It felt like a jolt of electricity going through my body. I start praying in tongues. I start, you know, just praying. And and horribly, I fell forward onto this poor woman. She, I didn't get the memo. I guess most people go this way. That's where the bodyguards were, but I went this way. And her face was just, oh. <laughs> it was so great. So... I'm sure we were like a tangle of heels and whatever, you know, and I don't know if she was okay or not because I was out. You know, I, I was in the spirit in a different place with the Lord, and I was happy. But I think she was okay. Uh, I actually saw her later, and, and I approached her and told her this whole story, and she was like, wow, I don't remember that. <laughs> so anyway, I tell you all that with a lot of humor, but I think you guys can see too that There was a lot of heartache in my life. There was a lot of hurt. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that since I got saved, you know, my life was wrapped up with a neat, pretty little bow, and there's a happy ending for everyone, and I never had another problem, and I never had, uh, you know, I never had the enemy come against me. We never fought, you know, each other, or we never fought sin or temptation, or we never fought addictions, or we never fought, you know, negative thoughts or whatever. We've been through a lot of stuff since we've I've come to know the Lord. But I can tell you this. I've never been alone. I've never been alone again. And that is a beautiful thing. <laughs> So my story is special because it's his story. It's special because it's a story of redemption. And that's a story that he wants for every single heart. He wants to redeem every single heart. Jesus' resurrection wasn't, you know, a historical event, although it was. But it's a life-giving act of grace that keeps happening over and over and over again as each person chooses to trust him and to believe in him and to surrender their hearts. So Easter morning is really the picture that I keep getting is Easter morning is for every heart. Easter morning can happen in your life, right? It can happen because redemption and resurrection and his grace and his love can be real to you, as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. And I know it because I've experienced it. And that's why my story is important. And that's why your story is important. Because your story can have an eternal impact. Your story goes on and on forever. Crafted and created by God the Father. So, will you guys pray with me?
Yeah, thank you for listening. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you that you're such a good Father. You love us even when we think we aren't worthy of your love. You see us at our worst, and you keep believing in our potential. You sent your son to die on the cross for us, God. You raised him from the dead so that we could experience that resurrection in our lives, so that we could experience his love and his grace and his mercy in each of us, and so that we could go and tell other people about that grace and about that love that saves us. God, we just thank you that there is hope and there is new life in you. And I just want to pray right now, God, that if there are people here that don't know you, if there are people that hear my story and they think, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've walked through. You don't know the horrible things that I've done in my life. I'm not worth saving. That's a lie. That's a lie. God loves you right where you are. He doesn't want you to do anything before you accept him in. He doesn't want you to do anything before you surrender to his love. He just wants to love you. And he wants to help you to know him. So I thank you, God, for your saving power. And Jesus, I just pray that if there's anyone here that wants resurrection power in their life, of their hopes, of their dreams, that they would just pray this with me. I just pray, Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart to be my Savior and my Lord. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I declare that you are the perfect living Savior. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you would have come if it was only me. Take my life and make it a living picture of your love and your redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. <laughs> you want to take over? <laughs> I know how to end this.